a Sunday school teacher was struggling really hard to uh, open a, a combination lock in a su- supply closet. She'd, fi- she'd been told that combination, but she'd just forgotten it. So she finally went down to the preacher's study and asked the preacher for help. The preacher came, looked at the lock, and quickly did the first two combinations on it. And then he went blank. He said, you know, I knew the combination, but I can't remember it either. So he folded his hands and looked heavenward rather serenely, and his lips moved ever so slightly. He looked back to the lock and quickly turned to the final, final number, and it opened. And the Sunday school teacher then, just amazed, she said, Preacher, I can't believe that you prayed and God gave you that combination. He said, you know, it's, it's nothing really. The combination is written on a piece of paper taped to the ceiling. You know, sometimes we can look like we are, we are very spiritual people. Sometimes we can look like we are people of prayer. And especially uh, those of us wearing this suit in this role, we can do that so well. Uh, I've learned from many of preachers in my life how to fake it. Not that that's good, but sometimes it's needed. But do we do that in our prayer life? We don't uh, often quite know uh, what to do about prayer. Maybe it's uh, how to go about it or whether we should have any expectation in prayer working. We know we should do it, but how do we go about this, this thing called prayer? Are we a people of prayer? If not, how do we become that? How do we become a people of prayer? There's no doubt that prayer is of major importance throughout the Bible. In Acts 12, we're given an account that's almost a humorous story in some ways uh, about answered prayer, but it doesn't start out so much in comedy. Let's read Acts 12, 1 through 5. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish crowd, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. You need to understand as we get into the story of just who Herod really is. Herod comes, he's a ruthless leader, and he comes from a whole line of ruthless leaders. He is seeking for nothing but to win popular approval. See, Herod's grand, grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod, Herod the Great was so ruthless that he executed one of his wives. I think you pronounce her name, uh, Mariamne. Her mother as well. He executed his wife, her mother, and three of his sons. The last of the sons that he executed was just five days before his own death. Shortly before his, Herod, and this is Herod the Great, shortly, shortly before his death, he imprisoned several of the uh, prominent Jewish leaders. He lured them into Jerusalem and imprisoned them. And he knew that people weren't going to cry or be too sad whenever he died. And so he ordered that these prominent Jewish leaders be executed whenever he died as a mark of defiance just against his whole uh, administration and the la- lack of respect for Herod the Great. They didn't follow through with those plans. They let the men go. But probably the most heinous act that he did, that Herod the Great did, is recorded in Matthew 2, verse 16, that is, 
whenever he ordered the execution of all boys to and under uh, around and near Bethlehem just because he heard that a king was born there. This baby Jesus created so much of a threat to Herod the Great that he massacred so many babies. The Herod we're looking at this morning is the grandson of Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa I. He reigned from 37 A.D. to 44 A.D. He followed in the footsteps of his grandfather, though. He, uh, he was kind of in a unique situation, not having full control, not having full power. Neither Rome nor the Jews really trusted Herod Agrippa here, and he was... He had to win favor with both groups. He had to try to figure out ways to gain trust. And he he figured out an option with the Jews. How to gain some trust or at least some credibility with the Jews is to, uh, to persecute the hated Christians. If nothing else, this will show that he has an act of alliance with the Jews. So he had James, the brother of John, put to death by a sword. And this worked. The Jews... Loved it. They liked that. And so he, he, was, he was just something small. Let's get, let's get the big dog. Let's go get Peter. So he imprisons Peter. Now, there, there's good reason why he's doing this on celebration of the Passover. During the Passover, all, the, all Jews from around the country are coming into Jerusalem. So he was, he's going to wait until the festivities are over, bring Peter out and do what he wants to to gain favor with these Jews. There's little doubt that Herod was wanting to, uh, to execute Peter. But he was, he was, it seemed like he was nervous about something. Because, he, did you notice he said four squads of four men each just to protect, just to guard Peter. This is kind of fascinating. He, uh, he just didn't want what happened in Acts 5.18 to happen. In Acts 5.18, several of the, of the apostles are put into jail. And an angel comes and lets them out. And t- the reason they're put in the jail is because they're preaching in this name of Jesus Christ there in the temple. And they, say, they put them in jail to say, quit doing that. The angel comes in and say, says, go back. Keep on preaching. And they get out of prison somehow. And, they, and the Jews are surprised at how they do this. Herod Agrippa did not want this to happen again. So he chained two guards to Peter and then set up two other posts, all for this one man. I think you could imagine that it's a hopeless situation for Peter. His fate is sealed. There's no doubt where this is going. All the cards are pointing in this direction. He's going to die. And there's no way of getting around this. Let's continue reading verse 6. Because something else was in plan here. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was, he was asleep. Fastened with two chains between two soldiers, others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell, following the angel. But all this time, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it, he, it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to a census. It's really true, he said. 
The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and what, from what the Jew, Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. Before we get into this miraculous escape, because it is miraculous, let's jump across town to peer into the house of Mary. This is John Mark's mother. See, we already saw that the church was praying for him. They were doing it here. They were doing it in John Mark's, his mother's house. And they were fervently praying for Peter. Now, this isn't just a normal bedtime ritual of, of pray, you know, Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for taking care of us and help us to sleep good. And by the way, be with Peter in Jesus' name, amen. It wasn't that type of prayer. They had gathered in Mary's house to pray for him fervently. I can imagine that this is going to be an all-night prayer meeting for them. They're going to pray all night. I kind of, I would like to know what, what they were praying for. As I already mentioned, this is a, seems like a helpless situation, or, or at least hopeless situation. Surely this church had already been praying for James. I'm assuming that they were praying for James before he was put to death. And I wonder whenever he died, when James was put to death by the sword, did that affect their prayers for Peter? Did they feel crushed because their prayer didn't get answered? I don't know. That's how we would feel a lot of times whenever our prayer doesn't get answered. But Lord, we were praying for James. What happened? Why didn't you bring this about, Lord? Why didn't you answer that prayer? So I wonder if that mentality affected their prayers for Peter. Did they pray for his comfort? Maybe peace in the situation? Maybe for Herod's will to be thwarted. But did they really pray for his escape? Did they pray that Peter would get out of this scot-free? I don't know. As the story goes, there seems to be some indication that they didn't, or if they did, they really didn't expect it to happen. I'm sure uh, with, with part, of, part of their prayers was for his release, but who, who could really see that happening? Who could see that that was going to be a part of it? But regardless, whatever they were praying, we know that the early church was fervently praying for Peter. Jump to modern times. Can that be said about us? Not necessarily about Peter. We, we may not have uh, leaders of our church imprisoned right now. And hopefully not anytime soon is what I'm hoping. But we have our own situations. Can we be called upon as a church to pray like they did there? Pray all night for one man? We may not... Uh, know exactly what to pray for a lot of times, but that's not the point. We don't pray because we know we're sure we're going to get what we ask for. I mean, if that, then we equate the Lord, the God and creator of the universe to a genie in the bottle. Grant us my three wishes, or however many, as long as I'm praying to you, grant me my wishes. It's not for the, the point of getting what we ask for. We pray because we want God to make the choice. We want to align ourselves with God so that he can make the choice and that we're on board with him. That is the reason we pray. From studying the story of, uh, of his escape, I really, I'm, I just don't expect, I don't think, I don't see that this early church expected Peter to ex escape. It just doesn't come in this story of saying, yep, we knew it, we prayed for it. This is what happened, of course. It's, it's not the, uh, going back to the escape, though, that we just read, it's not the craftiness of Peter that got him out of prison. 
It wasn't because he, he pulled out, uh, you know, he had duct tape and a little paper clip, and he just became MacGyver for a little bit and was able to just get out of prison. It's not his craftiness that got him out. It wasn't the, the graciousness of the guards that just let him go. They would later lose their life for this very act that he left. It was the power of God. It was the power of God that sent that angel. It was the power of God that loosed the chains. It was the power of God that opened the iron gate that enabled him to walk past all the guards. It was the power of God. And whenever Peter came to his senses, he recognized the exact same thing, that it was the power of God that has done this. And who, can, who else could be responsible? And how do you tap into that? Well, Peter comes to his senses and he makes his way straight where he knew the source was. The Christian's praying. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door uh, in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they, d- they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down. He told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. Every time I read this section of Scripture, I, I tend to laugh at the response, uh, especially of, uh, of those praying, but especially of Rhoda that is mentioned here. And how would you like your, your one appearance in Scripture to be a recounting this story uh, like, like it is of Rhoda? But here's Peter. He's knocking at the door. He talks to the servant girl. Maybe he even knows her by name. It's me. She recognizes it's Peter. And instead of opening the door, leaves Peter out in the cold. You can imagine, um, hello? It's kind of cold out here. I, uh, I'm out of prison. They might be searching for me. Can I come in? I can imagine just kind of what Peter might be thinking of saying, what's going on? Weren't you all praying for this? Here I am. It worked. The prayer you said worked. Let me in. Even though this church was praying, I don't think they were expecting this answer. It would have surprised us too, though. Wouldn't it? If we were there, if we were the ones praying, therefore, whatever, you know, praying for his comfort, uh, his ability to take this, this load that is on him, whatever it may be, and even praying for his release. If it really happened, I think we would have blamed the angel too. It's just his angel. That's all it is. We're praying so good that it feels like Peter's here with us in this room. Isn't that neat? But that's not what happened. It really was him. It really... He was there. You know, too often we can be surprised by, by God's answers. In connecting with God, Herb Miller tells a story of a nightclub that is opening on Main Street in a small town. Upon hearing the news, the only church in town organized an all-night prayer meeting. The members asked God to burn down the club. Within a few minutes, lightning struck. It struck right on the club and it burned it to the ground. The club owner then sued the church which the church denied responsibility for the destruction of the club. After hearing both sides, the judge said, it seems wherever the guilt may lie, one thing is clear. The nightclub owner believes in prayer. 
while the church doesn't. Isn't that sad? I mean, would I do the same? Would I do the same of saying, yes, you know, that wasn't our fault. We didn't do that. It was lightning. Or would I be the type of person there that whenever I heard that story, whenever I heard what happened, that I would say, yes, we prayed for it. And you know what? My God did that. You, wanna, you want me to pray for something else now? You know, that's how I would, feel, I would hope I would feel saying, yeah, my God has power. This prayer thing works. You want to join me? Think of all the opportunities that, that, that church had in that community just by taking responsibility, but they didn't. Would we be the ones to say, yes, I prayed and my God acted? You know, this chapter can teach us a lot of important, thing, important lessons about prayer. The first one seems pretty simple. The church should pray. Very simple, pretty logical. Of course the church should pray. But I, but I have to say, I wonder if we pray enough in our church and in our lives. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. Many of us may pray for a few moments and then stop. Maybe pick it up again a little bit later if, if we're especially righteous. You know, if we get two, maybe three prayers in, uh, not even including our meals. It's something to talk about. We, kinda, we can feel good about that, can't we? Well, yes, in some ways, but... Paul says to pray without ceasing. And by that, I don't think he means to be on your knees and praying 24-7. The thought there is that we should have an attitude of prayer. That when we talk with others, when we're going about our normal lives, our mind is in communion with God. That, that, is, that our mind is, is split world. That we are thinking Maybe women can do this better being multitaskers. Men, we may struggle with this. But we can be thinking and, and talking with God through every aspect of our lives. And double talk even. And bringing our conversations that we have with people to God as a prayer. But for many of us, prayer is a rare action. It is something we do infrequently. How many times have you been in conversation with someone that... Whether it may be they, they come up to you and say, you know, they, they confide in you. And they say, we're going, me and my wife, we're going through a divorce. Would you pray for us? Or I've lost my job, I'm looking for work. Would you pray for us? Or we've got whatever else, I've got an illness, I'm, I've got a doctor's appointment uh, this Tuesday. Would you pray for us? And of course, our response always is, yes, I will pray for you. And how many of us really do? Is it something we just say as a comfort? Or do we really spend time praying for them and with them and with the church about them? Ran across this cartoon illustration. I thought it was only too appropriate for me, if nothing else. It says, oh great, here comes Bob. I told him I would pray for him. Dear God, help Bob. Amen. Hey Bob, been praying for you. That's exactly how I feel sometimes. I'm like, oh, I told him I'd pray for him. And I forgot. One of the things we see in the passages in Acts is that the church prayed fervently. We need to pray as a church. Praying, praying, I believe, is the most important thing we do as a church. Number two, though, besides the church should just pray, the church should pray as a community. Prayer is often a private thing. I would say uh, most of our prayer time as individuals is not here as a church. 
But there's something to be said about that experience of community prayer. Now, I hope private prayer is something uh, part of your life and that you don't just depend on the public prayers at our worship services. But hearing others' prayers, voicing our own, and, and is more than just presenting requests. I would venture to say that it is, it, it is worship and praise. That whenever you are with a community, with others, and praying together, you're asking God to be invited in. You're inviting Him saying, Lord, we're here. Are you with us? as a community, praying together. And I think this is the reason why it says there in Scripture, when two or three are gathered, there I am also. It's because we're praying when we gather. And that that gathering invites God in. And so we should definitely pray as a community. Our bulletin has a prayer list in it every week. There are people who call upon the church that would like the church to pray for them. Are we doing it? Do you take home your bulletin? Do you, do you pray for them every day? Because this is another way that we can pray as a community. Because whenever it, it really draws our bonds together whenever I know that you are praying for me. Whenever I was traveling this past week, I knew you were praying for me. And boy, that, it just, that feels good for one, but it draws us closer. And if I've got issues, I know I can bring them. And if, you, if you're praying for me, even whenever I'm not around... That's the stuff that creates community. The type of community that this early church, I believe, shared. Peter finds the church gathered together in prayer for him. Number three, when we pray, we should expect God to respond. You know, so often in our life it seems that that we expect prayer to be unanswered. Garth Brooks' song, uh, Sometimes I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers, Sometimes that's all that we think of prayers, is that they're, they're just going to be unanswered, or at least answered in ways that, you know, we weren't expecting. They weren't answered in the way necessarily that we liked. Maybe at best, it, it, it's, it's that way, like Rhoda. I'm sure Rhoda was praying for Peter, but whenever Peter was there, that's too much to believe. I wasn't expecting this answer, Lord. A prisoner at a Soviet prison camp noted that one day he was, he was praying with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner noticed him and, and said in ridicule, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. Opening his eyes, he answered, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. That's someone knowing what to ask for in prayers. That's someone knowing what the right focus of prayer is because whenever that prayer is answered, it's expected. So I guess it really doesn't matter what that early church was praying for and that they were you know, surprised to see Peter there. What they were doing was praying and asking God to come into their situation that they had. Peter, he was going to die. Lord, affect something. We're going to leave the choice up to you. Either affect his heart to where he can deal with this, he can walk boldly to his death, uh, honoring you through that, or Lord, if it's your will, take care of him. Bring him here. But I'm not going to lie, Lord, that'll surprise us. That'll surprise us if you answer that prayer, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that we doubt you. It just means that we're surprised because it's not supposed to happen not supposed to happen like that it's not logical 
Even when we don't know what to pray for, prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Prayer should be so much inside of our lives that that is the, the most natural reaction when someone says they need something, let's pray. Let's do that. The church today, you know, it has many advantages over that first century church. We have more money, more buildings, a freer government. We have more political powers, more Bibles, more tools. We have padded pews, air conditioning, maybe even a better looking preacher. Or maybe not the last one. We have many advantages. But that first century church might beat us out on one all-important category. They knew how to pray. They knew when to pray. And they may not have always known what to pray for. They may have been surprised by prayer like we are often in our lives, but they did it anyway. They were people of prayer. They believed that prayer was, uh, was a power that, that ruled over even the most powerful opponent. Prayer works. The God behind prayer works. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if this church here prayed like that church there did. If we really focused our efforts together and that we were to pray for whatever it is that we see fit, whether it's for reaching this community or bringing back those lost souls that have gone out or whatever we put our mind to, I wonder if we prayed like they did, how would God answer it? Would God answer it like he did here? If he did, I'm, I'm sure we would be surprised by it. I'm sure if we were to pray right now that this building be full next week, and we believed it, we would still be surprised if it happened. We'd be excited, but we'd be surprised. And I think that's okay, because being surprised by prayer is showing us that God is much more further beyond our understanding than we could ever fathom. Because he works in mysterious ways. Psalm says, my ways are higher than your ways. I believe that to be true. So are we going to pray like that church did? Are we going to have that attitude about prayer? This expecting even the unexpected. Let's join as a community and do that. If you are in need of prayers with this congregation... If you're in need of getting right with the Lord, then this is a great opportunity because I know prayer is a powerful thing and it works. And if you are in need of prayer, if you're in need of change in your life, then now's a great opportunity. Let that be known. Come forward and, and make your request known and we will pray with you as a community and we will expect God to respond to it. So if it, you're in need of anything, any prayers, or even taking on Jesus in the waters of baptism, that is a wonderful thing. If you're in need of it, please come forward as we stand and sing.